Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with ad man Jonathan Hoffman from Philo Media in Chicago. We chat about the state of traditional advertising, the promise of augmented reality and video-driven apps, and the future of consumer-produced content. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Hoffman. Okay, guys, today I would like to welcome a guy who's cut his teeth with Leo Burnett in Poland and Chicago, as well as McCann and Starcom. He's now partner and creative director at Philo Media, based in Chicago and L.A., Jonathan Hoffman. Jonathan, thanks for being on Obsessed with Design. Thanks very much for having me, man. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, although you describe yourself on Twitter as a bit of a design geek, um, I have a feeling today is going to revolve a little bit more around advertising and video and some some components to conversations we haven't had really in depth on this show yet. So that's cool. Great. I'm hoping that those things are not uh, mutually exclusive or oxymoronic or whatever, even though they, they generally can be. But I've spent my career trying to disprove that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, maybe before we get too deep in here, tell us a little bit about what Philo Media is about. So Philo Media is what I would call a tech-adjacent custom digital content company. Um, they are or were unique when I met them and still are for me um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world where unique is really tough to do, um, being built from production up. Um, is really cool from my vantage point when I would sit across the table as a creative director or an executive creative director, generally everything was um, pretty neatly sort of uh, strolling in vertical lanes that didn't intersect. And now of course, you know um, that as a way of doing things, at least if you're a brand trying to connect with people, people don't behave in vertical lanes. They tend to behave mm -hmm. horizontally right. uh, across those lanes. And so um you know, Philo uh, is sort of giving, you know, constructed to give people, you know, content in, in ways that they now consume it, which generally means on mobile devices. But, they, you know, we have distribution in-house and we have, you know, sort of self-contained production in-house and we have idea making in-house. So the glib answer would be that, um, you know, I think we're, we are thinkers who, who actually make stuff as opposed to what I used to be, which was a thinker who handed stuff off to be me. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's what we do. Well, cool. Well, one of the things that I always love to touch on uh, with our guests is to learn a little bit about their origin story. So before the call, you were telling me a little bit about that this advertising gene apparently runs in your family. So tell us a little bit about how you got introduced uh, to this world and how we find you today at Philo. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Well, it was sort of a circuitous route. Um, <laughs> I grew up in New York City, um, you know, uh, a child of the late 60s and 70s. My mom was a hippie, you know, uh, socialist, bohemian, um, you know, who had to make a living. So she ended up in, in this business. She started out as a secretary and within 10 years owned an agency, which ironically she sold to Publicis, which is the the holding company that I spent most of my time with. Um, my dad was a doctor. He lived on the Lower East Side, blah, blah, blah. But I grew up, um, so, uh, you know, with, um, in, you know, with my mom and in this environment and where, you know, it was really, it was critically important to be interesting. Um, and that was, you know, that was the biggest thing. And, and they, they weren't, I mean, I, I hope, you know, pretentious about that, but they were, everybody was extremely well-traveled. It wasn't fancy. Uh, extremely well read. Um, and one of the things was that, you know, my mom had uh, a boyfriend, a guy named Tom, a French artist, Alsatian artist named Tommy Unger. So it's T-O-M-I-U-N-G-E-R-E-R. -E -E uh, he's on Instagram. Um, but, you know, he just really instilled in me along with her sort of the power of, uh, you know, graphically conveyed uh, beautiful ideas. And uh, so whether he made plenty of advertising, he made plenty of fine art, he had a wonderful sort of conceptual sense of humor. Um, 
so you know that's just that that's the that's the petri dish that I sprang up in. And I feel pretty lucky, <laughs> you know, pretty lucky about that. That was definitely a gift. Um, you know, when I got out of school, having studied uh, film uh, at Vassar, um, I, you know, my form of rebellion was to put on a suit. <laughs> it really freaked my mom out. You know, she had sort of done the advertising thing and had been very successful in it, and I was therefore not interested. I rejected it, and I went to work on Wall Street, which was really um, a whole other a whole other story. But I ended up. After that experience, which was a, a, a miserable failure, um, you know, meeting and befriending a guy that founded, and this is serendipity or whatever you choose to believe, whatever your belief system is, kismet, uh, a guy who ended up founding uh, uh, a very, very creative, and by that I mean sort of non, non-traditional agency in Minneapolis called Fallon McGilligate Rice at the time. It's now called Fallon, also ironically ended up in the publicist family. The whole industry is kind of... Go ahead. Sorry. A little incestuous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what happens. Everything just sort of starts to merge together and the work begins to look that way as well. Uh, but they were independent. I met him and, um, you know, sort of got my start with him. And from there, things, you know, I was sort of the tallest midget, I guess. You know, things moved very fast because I had this in my background, I suppose. But yeah. And so, you know, I've spent most of my time being sort of the, um, you know, the, the sand and the Vaseline, if you will, the fly in the ointment, yeah, <laughs> uh, in most of the places that I've been in that, you know, if you look at 99.9% of what the marketing slash advertising industry, uh, you know, puts out, it's, it's, it's pollution, right? I mean, it's just awful. It's to be avoided. And it's, um, and in a time when, you know, when we had captive audiences, when there weren't that many uh, media outlets and options and certainly personal technology was not what it, you know, hadn't exploded the way it has now, you know, what I tried to do at the public service I did, I thought was to at least, you know, if I'm going to be an uninvited guest in somebody's living room, the, you know, the least I could do is bring some champagne. Right. So, um, and, and I mean, and to me that connects to my idea of design, right? So if I'm going to do something pleasing for people that they, they, they opt to engage with as opposed to opting to ignore uh, or get angry at that. That's, that's good design. To me. Yeah. It's like the classic Super Bowl commercial thing. You know, that's the one time of year that people are like, Oh, the commercials are on be quiet. Watch. I want to see the commercials. And you know, it's interesting that, um, that advertisers don't view every opportunity in those uh, more classic interruption mediums of, you know, I'm going to stop and take you away from the thing that you want and now show you something else. That's really cool that you didn't know about, or I'll give you another boring ad. Yeah. Or, or, or just, you know, I mean, worse. Yeah. Boring, stupid, insulting, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, it, it is surprising. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, let's see, I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a lot of years ago, maybe, maybe 2000, year 2000, um, or just before that, I had just gotten back from Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, there was a cover story on the Sunday times magazine. I've since tried to find it. It's my hometown paper. Even though I was living in Chicago, I was so excited. And the visual was a photograph of an exploding box of cornflakes. And the story was about TiVo. It was the first sort of time shifting device that was out. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, probably it was not a great career move, but I thought that was the greatest thing. I ran around the halls of Leo Burnett and of course, Kellogg's one of our biggest clients thinking, you know, this is, this is awesome because it means one of two things. Either the stuff we do is going to have to be good enough that people won't want to do that. Won't want to fast forward through it or delete it, or it's going to go away completely. And, you know, sort of neither of which has has happened. I just kind of thought it was a death knell for the hacks, which would mean that, you know, we would make stuff that people actually wanted to kind of see and engage with. And so I still believe that <laughs> I'm still trying to do it. And unfortunately the hacks are still alive <laughs> and the hacks are still alive and they're, and they're, yeah, I mean, I think they're fiddling while Rome is burning to a certain extent, but they're definitely there and it's scale. Scale is the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And moving to other media that, that allow for (laughs) more work because video and everything else is everywhere now. 
Absolutely. But, you know, we're great polluters, I mean, of, of our environments. Nobody pollutes an environment like marketers, you know. And um, and so we're sort of, uh, you know, this is and these opinions are mine only. But I mean, everybody who knows me knows that I feel this way. It, you know, we're 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 moving like lemmings into all these different environments in the same as if people were captive and we're chasing people off platforms and we're treating, you know, the, so, the giant social platforms the same way we treated TV. It's a dog's breakfast. So, I mean, there are obviously exceptions to that, and there are ways to do it that don't sort of manifest in ugly, <laughs> unnatural ways. Yeah, but, but I mean, that takes work, and it usually doesn't start out huge. Maybe this is a good segue. I was going to ask you this later in the, in the show, but um, you were telling me a little bit before about a little augmented reality project that you're working on now. I think that's a good segue to talking about where we are right now. Sure. So, you know, I think... Um, uh, a casual observation in one's own kitchen, if one has children, which I do. I have three boys. Shout out to them. Young men, two of them, teenagers. But, um, you know, by the time they were, you know, still very little, they were black belts at avoiding or deleting, you know, the half a billion dollars that various marketers were sort of paying my agencies to foist messages upon them. It just, it just not only were they not cord cutters, they're never going to have a cord to cut, you know? And, and so if you watch that and, you know, which is like, fine, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the truth. It just is. It's not, you know, sure. not harsh reality. It's just reality. What do you do? I mean, marketers still have an awful lot of stuff to sell. Um, they might not have as much to say as they think they do. And certainly they're going to have to learn to say it differently, but it, you know, it, you know, sort of reconciling that gap, it could be a very cool thing, you know, because these kids don't have to engage with anything. They're curating their own lives and they're really good at it. So that's my whole, that's my starting brief, right? So if we, we got an assignment from Kellogg's, which was basically, it was an ask from a very forward thinking, you know, person there in a very senior job to see if we could help, if we could use a layer of technology to turn their packaging into a media channel. And um, without knowing whether or not it was possible, I said, yeah, we, brief. You know, we, wanted, we wanted some of that scale for ourselves, this little band of special operatives that I was running at the time. And um, but as we were saying before, before we started, you know, I think what I loved about it was that it really was an, it was a, an age old insight that, you know, kids need to be sort of entertained or hopefully productively distracted if you're going to keep them still. Uh, long enough to, you know, stick something in their face. Mm -hmm. So a neat thing is that we just use new tools for that. And the tool that we used, and this is actually how I met Philo, the group of special operatives that I'm now a partner with, is a light touch augmented reality, which is essentially if you hold your phone over any inanimate object to a three-dimensional, uh, we can use that uh, to trigger content. And, um, and the thing about that is, you know, my idea for it and, you know, we, we, you know, we closed our project and it was fine. Everybody, you know, I, the way consultants work, I, I found out was that you don't actually have to go make anything. We proposed a bunch of stuff and everybody nodded and thought it was awesome and they didn't do anything. But in any case, what we proposed and what we <laughs> really be able to do and what we're still able to do, should we get the chance? And we're still trying actually with a whole different slew of clients. But was my thought was, well, you know, um, right now, kids already have devices open at the table. Okay, so what's the bit of design here that I can do that would be worth the effort on my part to tell them to stop engaging with whatever they're engaging with and start engaging with this? And, and you know, um, I've noticed as a parent that there's a shortage of um, interesting sort of current events content for, like, teens and tweens, young teens, between, like, let's say, 9 and 13 years old. It's either really medicinal, sort of, you know, in that kind of very serious, precious, still love it, but sort of PBS kind of way, or it's really, really on the other end of the spectrum, very fluffy and, and sort of poppy and kind of Nickelodeon-ish with all due respect. So I thought, well, okay, so, you know, the, the news outlets that I, that I ingest, you know, New York Times, chief among them, but, you know, BBC and CNN have, would seem to me, a vested interest in sort of creating a new legion of people who know what they are, because this is, again, these are a group of people who are 
like music, they think content's free. They don't, they don't really, yeah, you know, exactly. this comes out of the air to the extent that they're interested at all. So in any case, the, the idea for me was like a three-legged stool where we would take, you know, and you wouldn't have to make new content for it, right? You could take science, arts, sports, really good, appropriate content and, you know, have it presented in a very cool way. They wouldn't have to make anything new off the back of like your frosted plates box, you know, just by holding your phone over it. And I thought, yeah. If, if, yeah, if I could offer that as a dad who wasn't in the business, even I would cross the, the boundary and tell, you know, my youngest son, whose name is Jasper, put stop shooting aliens or zombies or whatever it is you're killing and take, check this out. This is really cool. I'll look at it with you. And then you also have a moment, which advertisers seem to really covet of like some sort of familial togetherness. That's not, forgive me, or anyway, not contrived. It's not, it's not inauthentic. It's not BS. It's real, right? And at that point, I don't care that the person under whose auspices, that, that, that a giant food company brought me that experience. All I care about is that it's an experience that I didn't have before, that I couldn't create myself, and that somebody's helping me with, and it's getting me closer to my kid over a cool piece of information. So that's, that's great design to me. I love the idea that that creates sort of habit for the, for the family too, that they, Absolutely. they need to want to have that cereal box or whatever it is to help, uh, kind of kick off that relationship and that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't begrudge, and I don't, I don't begrudge the cereal company that either, as long as the experience continues to live up to what my, to the expectations that they themselves set, you know, that's fine. Maybe you could give us, I mean, you give us a little bit of a hint about what Phyla is about, but tell us a little bit more about kind of the size and the shape. And I know you're kind of split out between LA and Chicago, but what's, what's the size of the team and what are some of the roles that are part of that company? Sure. So, um, it's, it's relatively small. I mean, you know, we have, um, about a dozen people between New York and LA, at least as sort of the, as far as the alleged management goes you know, the, the, the executive staff, if you will. Um, we have a handful of really, uh, sort of, you know, Mozart, like young people, younger people who are young, not only in mindset, but also chronologically. And uh, we have a stable of, uh, A-list, you know, directors who are also directing, uh, you know, traditional, you know, linear TV commercials as well. Um, so, you know, it's, I mean, all in all, it's, it's probably 25 people and it's, you know, it's a great size. I mean, I come from, I come from the sort of, from the monoliths, you know, from the exact opposite and uh, sure with massive holding companies and yes, thousands and thousands of employees, you know, sort of really like a cog in a giant machine. Um, and there's, you know, again, more power to them. They, they, there's a place for that, I suppose, but the smarter ones are trying more and more to the extent that they're able to behave like small places with 25 people. in So tell me a little bit about the strategy for you guys to operate at the size that you are. I mean, we've, we've talked to people on the show who are soloists and people who also work for, you know, these billion dollar or fortune 100 size kind of companies. So I'm sure there's some intention around being in this, you know, 12 to 25 size. And do you guys plan to, you know, triple in size over the next couple of years, or do you want to just kind of operate in, at this niche size because that's more advantageous for you? It's a great question. I mean, my, my, you know, I haven't really thought about it. You know, it's sort of what the, the market so far has dictated. We certainly don't, we don't have anybody extra <laughs> and, and, you, <laughs> and you wouldn't, you know, um, it's just not the kind of luxury if that's a luxury, I don't know, but you know, um, so there's, Everybody, there's no slack. Everybody, everybody sort of, and which is the way the people here, including me, really like it. You know, we ha- we have the people here to handle the volume of projects that we're getting, and um, you know, hopefully, we need to grow. I think, but on the other hand, there is something to um, you know, kind of being uh, I don't know, you know, special operative like in terms of the way you can coalesce around a project at this size that, you know, you really, you know, it, it structurally somehow at a certain point, you just lose the ability to do that. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I listened to your, um, podcast with, uh, forgive me, I forget his name, but with a guy from Pentagram, which is a place for, I mean, how could you not have 
tons of respect and admiration for that place. And, um, about, and I liked for, for a relatively large, very, very famous, very, very successful place. I liked that they tried, they really tried to keep the structure, you know, small and pod like, and a, b- a bunch of individuals all sort of working for the same thing as opposed to a, a giant cadre of people. So. Yeah. It's interesting when you hear, um, Michael Beirut talking about how they have teams that are, you know, five to a dozen people or something you would think about as you're working with these massive clients like Citibank that you probably have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people working on them. And it's, it's just a handful of people. And when it comes down to it, I think that's totally doable when you have that very, you know, siloed nature of like working on one focused thing. I, I really agree. I, you know, I mean, again, it's just my personal opinion that that, that size, the girth thing is laziness to me. I, I've never seen a brief, <laughs> a really focused, insightful, well thought out brief that turned into a really, really crisp, authentic strategy that you couldn't do with a handful of people. You know, I mean, and then I mean, and so then depending on how the product of that gathering needs to get made you can certainly you know you can contract that in our case we don't have to but but you know um so i I agree with you so what about your role in particular what's your uh kind of day or week look like between you know strategy or client contact or new business or directing producing i'm sure it's a little bit of all those things but but what what's normal feel like for you uh it is i mean normal feels like for me um you know, we're, we are a, uh, a small place, uh, trying to grow and sort of prove our, our relevance and, uh, our, our, you know, the validity of our existence in a very crowded, very competitive, uh, system. So, you know, um, and I have the conviction of my belief that we do have a, a, a we, 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 we meet an unmet need. So, you know, I'm doing a ton of business development, um, in terms of, you know, kind of explaining to uh, clients and colleagues that I've worked with in the past exactly what I'm talking to you about. Um, And I really enjoy doing that because instead of, you know, doing that on behalf of a big giant place where some of what I'm saying at least has to be disingenuous just because of the way the thing operates, um, you know, now, I mean, I really have uh, sort of the, the pure chance to put those beliefs into action and hope um, that they'll be you know, successful and well-received. Um, but, you know, I'm at my happiest when I'm, when I'm thinking stuff up, you know, when I'm trying to figure out ways to make what we do uh, more engaging, um, you know, and that would mean getting assignments and RFPs or briefs in from clients and, um, trying to balance this thing of, um, you know, it's funny. I actually had somebody, I won't mention, you know, I had somebody ask me the, the, the veiled question was, okay, so you're pretty forward thinking for our business anyway, you know, um, what if, you know, some giant, extremely remunerative client, um, just does not want that. They want to work with us, but you know, most clients for a variety of reasons, some of them good, some of them really not good. Um, you know, won't find their way to visionary work. Otherwise, you know, there would be less than half, there would be more than the half a percent that's worthwhile <laughs> for the 70 billion marketing dollars that are spent every year. You know? yeah. and, but essentially, I just, I, I got what he was asking me. He was asking me if I could be awesomely mediocre, if I was willing to do that. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes. I don't know how I can find that yet, but I, you know, because my first instinct is to try to do something that is really hasn't been seen before, but you know, but yes, I mean, pragmatism creeps in and keeps the lights on and, you know, it pays for a lot of other more interesting experiential stuff um, or experimental stuff. So I, I, I have to be, I'm balancing that. I'm being awesomely mediocre when I have to, and I'm hopefully just trying to be awesome when I can, but, um, but yeah, so it's, it's just writing stuff, creating stuff, imagining how stuff can look and then working on it with our team and making it better and getting it into a presentable form. And do you feel like you have a, um, a good example of a failure where you learned something from, where they're one of these things that you were shooting for awesome and tripped and fell a little bit or, (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, to me, it's like, you know, it's I mean, it's one in 10 and that's a great hit rate, you know, I mean, but um, we we uh, we got a brief from a very high end car company. And, you know, to my mind, um, the audience for these kinds of cars, for anybody who's going to spend over one hundred thousand dollars on an automobile. These are people who are, you know, basically unreachable. Again, I'm not a golfer, and I suppose in live sports and things like that, I and mean, the only sport I ever really loved was soccer, football, you know, your international football. But mm-hmm. um, I guess they're there for those things. But other than that, I mean, certainly they're, you know, this is we're talking C-suite here. And so I thought, well, you know, I was a big admirer. I am a big admirer of David Lubars. He's the chief creative officer of, you know, BBDO. He came from Fallon, came from Minneapolis, and he was the guy who – probably 10 years ago, invented BMW films. I don't know if you remember that. or what. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some great poster series and everything around it, too. Yeah, you know, the star was not the car. That was a big deal. The star were the directors. It was Guy Ritchie and John Woo and um, a couple others. But in any case, famously, Guy Ritchie met Madonna, I think, on that shoot, um, to whom he was married for a little while. But I thought, well, oh, great. You know, I have such I have such admiration for that as an effort. What, what, let's, let's do that for 2016. And so we imagine there's there's technology now where you can sort of put yourself into the content that you're watching, and you can do it in real time. Um, and we know that com- we know at least one company I used to advise them that that that, that does that. We like them. They're out of Norway. There's a lot of cool stuff comes from Norway. But in any case, I thought, well, why don't we? Here's my idea. Let's th- these people are unreachable except in places maybe like you know. Um, the Economist, and, you know, LinkedIn occasionally, if we could hijack, we could, we could, we could sift some data, figure out who some of these guys are on LinkedIn, hijack LinkedIn pages, whatever, and get them a message that looked as if they were being invited to join uh, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, secret, you know, CIA type effort. Um, they were going to, and, and essentially, um, not so much kidnap them, but get them into a situation where they didn't know what they were in for. And we created this sort of invitation, sort of like, you know, one of the better video games, you know, sort of a, a Call of Duty type thing. But essentially what, the, what we were going to do is one thing that we figured, no matter how much money you have, you can't put yourself into like an action game. You know, I mean, pick somebody that you like. It, it could be Paul Greengrass. It could be Michael Bay, whatever. But what we're going to do is literally take these people and put them into an action sequence, you know, where we're going to shoot, we're going to close off a section of PCH and have, you know, pyrotechnics and stunt people train this guy up for a day and then get him to drive the sequence in the new vehicle. Now, I mean, to me, that's a one of a kind thing that would scale enormously and quickly if you got the chance to do it. Yeah. And what they ended up doing was golf. <laughs> so what they meant by that, like they not only didn't take what we what we wanted to do, you know, it was just like, thank you very much. We're doing golf, and I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense, you know. So um, I actually have a great tangential story about that exact phenomenon. But that was I wouldn't call it a failure. The work was great. I would have I would have you know if if we had gotten that done, and it's a huge if, but. That's not, a, you know, that would have been a world beating. It would transform our business. I believe it would have transformed their business. Um, I really believe it. Um, so that's, that's what I'm aiming at. That's the windmill that I'm tilting at, you know, but there's a great story. So I'm a, I'm a big Simpsons fan, you know, and, uh, years and years ago, um, Yan Wenner did an article with Matt Grenig, you know, on one of their big anniversaries, I think probably 25 anniversaries, whatever. And it went on and on and on. It was great. And if you love them, you loved it. You just read it. And, and at the end, and at the end, um, Ian Winter said, well, so, so how does it feel? You know, you started out doing this little thing like Akbar and Jeff. It was like this tiny little underground cartoon. And now, you know, you've really transformed American popular culture. I mean, like, how does that feel? <laughs> and he, in a typical bit of humility, I guess it's typical. I, I hear he's a pretty cool guy. But, you know, he said, well, just so that we don't get too big for our britches, you know, every, every year or so, Rupert Murdoch and his wisdom, the people at Fox make us test you know, a certain number of episodes of The Simpsons, no matter how successful we've been, you know, they just, they still make us do this uh, just to see like, you know, what people think, what the American public or whatever, the whole, the global public thinks of it. He said every single year, the two top things that come back or what people like about The Simpsons are one, it's in color. 
and two, when Homer gets hit in the head. And, <laughs> you know, and, and so I just love that. I, I really love that, you know, as, as, a, as a good look at one's own ass, if, for lack of a better expression. You know? <laughs> so, you know, golf. I failed. I, beat, I got beaten by golf. The discerning tastes of the American public. There you go. There you go. What is it? Marshall McLuhan was right. <laughs> Never go broke underestimating the American public. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite questions to ask our guests is that I find uh, creative people of all stripes are typically obsessed with, with one or two things, maybe lots of things. So what would you say that you're most obsessed with right now? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I... <laughs> Yeah, I, I almost so. I mean, I'm obsessed with every. I mean, I'm I'm an obsessive person um, by nature, and I that's probably got some good stuff to it. I know that it's got some bad stuff to it. You know, I I really I'm really interested in um, the convergence of sort of street art, fashion, culture, music. I you know I I can trace it. I mean, this obsession has lasted about five years. I was, I was given, we were given a brief, we were doing some work for Microsoft, um, which involved kind of designing a physical experience for them at the Cannes Advertising Festival in the South of France. Really cool, you know, and what they had done previously was just sort of, I mean, hey, it's like golf. You know, they, they just, they, they got a beautiful location in the center of the beach and they had hired Mark Ronson, who's a great DJ, and they opened the bar. You know, it's, it's not that complicated. Um, and, we, and we actually, you know, we, we, we tried and we beat, I think we, I don't know if we beat that, but we, we did something cooler about their suite of products and how they work better together. But in any case, I got down this rabbit hole of really obscure, like underground electronic music. Um, which I found out that I, I mean, I've always been a huge music fan anyway, of, of all types, you know, you know, punk rock, I followed the dead around forever, you know, whatever, anything. I just loved it. And I, and I got down this, this rabbit hole and down there in that rabbit hole, it connects to a lot of really interesting things sort of across culture. So fashion and, um, sneakers, oddly. Um, and I got really into sort of these kind of small batch sneaker collaborations, which I love because you'll have these giant, you know, um, uh, manufacturers kind of partnering if they can with really small, wonderful, um, you know, artists and creators and letting them do their thing mm -hmm. and choosing not to do things that scale, um, using that as a way to invite people into sort of, a, I guess they hope, their, their larger kind of business. But, you know, for me, I'm just interested in that tiny little kernel. So, so, you know, limited edition Japanese sneaker, sneaker collaborations. I'm obsessing about a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice long way around the, around the house. Um, we had, uh, Mikey Burton on a couple of weeks back and he had to do one of those, uh, you know, hand drawn, hand painted illustration collaborations with Converse a few years back was, yeah. which was super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I like that. I like that. That I mean, for, I don't have a better jargon for it, but that mashup of things, the way culture is kind of smushing out and it's flattening. I love that. I'm obsessed with that. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, well, you've certainly had your hand in some some super cool work over the years. Love the examples that you shared with me. In particular, the thing that you guys did with uh, that you worked on with Basil Hayden's. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about um, that project and how this, you know, traditionally marketed spirits company, how you kind of open their eyes to something different? Sure, sure. Uh, it was it was great. And, you know, again, I mean, a lot of um, it's going to sound cloying. A lot of what I do is just get out of the way or I'm, I'm just barely smart enough to listen to the right people. They tend to be about half my age. And again, I'm a, I'm a pretty good judge of where, I mean, I think anyway, whatever, where, where there's substance and not just kind of a facade. Um, but in any case, I, I was working, you know, I had a, a really brilliant young woman uh, working with us on our team. And she, we, we, you know, I was trying to sell what we were proposing to a whole portfolio of really traditional clients. And I finally got a meeting with the, the then chief marketing officer of Bean Brands, a really cool guy, by the way, very great guy. He's not there anymore, but he was great. And, um, you know, he got it. But again, you know, 
his life is easy. <laughs> you know, you're selling an addictive thing and it's, it's, it, everybody loves it and whatever, you know, he's not really looking to challenge people. And he said, well, okay, so, so you guys want an assignment. I kind of get what you're doing. Um, here's an assignment for you. I, I have to prove I, every year I got to stand up at this sales meeting in Las Vegas and talk to a bunch of really important to me, but a bunch of, you know, um, distributors, you know, and these are guys who are not interested in me. They're just interested in one thing. Like, like, are they, are we selling more stuff than last year? That's really it. They want to get back to the tables. And, uh, he said, but, but, you know, I think that we are, um, we're in danger of getting eclipsed on the one hand by tiny little micro brands that are doing really interesting artisanal things and selling at a very high margin to people who don't give a shit, frankly, forget, forgive my language about certain kinds of implied quality that come from bigger things, or we're going to get rolled over by much faster moving, much, you know, sort of more uh, prescient and perceptive big marketers. And that'll be worse. We'll just get stuck in between. So, I am having a problem convincing these guys that social is anything more than what their kids play around on, you know, when they're not, when they're supposed to be doing their homework. Can you convince me that there's a, that there's real value there? Can you, can you help me convince them that there's real value there? And, um, you know, we said, sure, absolutely. We'd love to do that. And so what we, what we did was we staged this experiment. Um, and again, this is, you know, uh, her name is Amy Carr. I have to give a shout out to Amy. She's at now running digital and partnerships for the Hillary campaign. Um, but, you know, she, she had a, a sort of a, a core of friends who were gathering, again, they're millennials. Um, I think, you know, they've avoided most of the cliches of that group um, in that they're all doing and making stuff and caring about things and putting that you know, into action. But in any case, they were gathering weekly for these poker games. And, you know, what they, these are all people with what I would call super high value social currency. So, you know, in the tens of thousands of followers on multiple platforms, usually Tumblr and Instagram, but elsewhere as well. And, um, and she said, you know, I mean, it's it, it, in their natural habitat, there's a lot of drinking going on and there's a lot of posting going on. She said, well, mm-hmm. you know, if we, if we drop a case of Basil Hayden's in the middle of that environment and then in a very unobtrusive sort of organic way documented that, you would see very quickly the power of social. And um, so we did that. And all we did was sort of stand back and get out of the way. And they did what they do. You know, you saw the case video. Um, the really interesting thing was is that, I mean, I don't know if this is probably three years ago. Before that, you know, of course, the, the, the paradigm shift hadn't happened yet. So, so young Instagrammers and people who were hadn't just beginning to think about maybe using their talents for brands and maybe hopefully making, you know, making a living doing it, whatever. You know, they were trying very, very hard to get on to sort of the larger, more traditional media owners platforms. Sure. They had occupied, you know, the Condé Nast of the world and the Hearst of the world. And um, very quickly, what we saw was that that had completely flipped. And now, as of three years ago, certainly now it's, a, it's you know, it is a truth. But then it was so cool to see that, you know, the Condé Nast and the Hearst and everybody else of the world were really looking at these kids. I mean, they're kids um, and making very beautiful, very aesthetically. I mean, it, you know. You know, I mean, you don't need to spend $100,000 for a half a day with a really high end. I mean, you can and, you know, you do get something for that. But you certainly these guys prove that there's value in this visceral sort of, you know, uh, sort of instantaneous uh, action and behavior, you know, on behalf of brands. So we had all of them looking in. And what happened when they looked in was they posted this this poker game on on their own sites. And when that happened, Instagram put it on their page and, you know. That's a huge deal in terms of exposure. So essentially, you know, as I said, you know, for the for the for the price of a of a case of bourbon and uh, you know, and the expenses of a couple of you know smart creative kids, you know, we got three million <laughs> impressions in two hours, um, which is really <laughs> something. You know, you said you know, so that that was that experiment, and I think that was um, good design. A little bit more impact than a shelf talker in a liquor store. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Jonathan, you've had the chance to work with some pretty impressive brands between uh, Porsche and Nordstrom and GMC and even shooting with Zack Snyder, which I think is pretty freaking cool. Mike Jones, Antoine Fuqua. Yep. 
just just a few people. I'm not sure if anybody's ever heard of those guys. You know, just just average Joes with cameras. But yeah. um, I'm curious from your experience, what makes a really great client? Like, what do you what do you look for and what do you watch out for? Wow, I think that. Um, so I, I can I tell a story from when I was in Eastern Europe. Um, we were presenting a uh, a very um, how should I say sort of provocative campaign for what was the largest Polish pension fund, which had at that time been been newly privatized, right? So it became a business. I mean, it used to be under socialism that you'd get, you know, cradle to grave, that right? you get taken care of. Now all these businesses were being split up and, you know, and privatized and uh, being run for profit and people had to opt into them and pay a little fee and give them money and all that stuff, like an investment company. And um, we presented what I thought, I mean, I still think I could find the work somewhere. It was a really great campaign. And it was jarring. We were around a table with, you know, a whole retinue of client um, layers. And, um, you know, there's always a million reasons not to do something interesting, I'll tell you. And uh, it went around the table and it really looked like, you know, we were going to lose to golf. And um, the CEO of the company said, you know, well, I don't see why we would hire these guys and then do their job for them. Um, you know, I think the expression he uses, you know, is it don't, don't, don't buy a dog and bark yourself or there's other cliches for it. You know, it isn't as if people in my position don't really know that if what we do doesn't work somehow, whatever the definition of work is, we're not going to be doing it again. Right. So I think that, you know, and I, I think the same would have been would have been true of this guy. It happened that what we did, we, we got it made and it did work. But, you know, let us do our thing. And uh, it doesn't mean that we can't collaborate. But, you know, I don't tell you how to construct pension funds. And you hired me to tell your story for you in a way that's going to differentiate you from the half a dozen other folks who are doing the exact same thing. Maybe you ought to just, you know, I know it's scary. I, I mean, I think empathy I have to, my end of the bargain is I really do need to empathize with it because it's unproven. You don't know if it's going to work and it's a lot of money, but I think that kind of respect, or I don't know what you would call it, but that's, that's a good client. Yeah. I think there's that, um, continuum of on the one side, you just want to do exactly what the client asks you to do. And at the other side, you want to just do something ridiculous to entertain yourself. And I think the agencies that operate in the middle, there are the ones that really can empathize with the, the client and what their, what their end user or end client is going to do. And you can bring something different to the table that is really going to uniquely tell their story that you don't, that the client's not there to, to pull the handbrake at every turn to go, Oh, Oh, it's too far. It's too much. Wait, be careful. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, uniquely tell their story. That's where the crux is. If you're talking about toothpaste or tires, I mean, that ain't easy to do. If I manage that, if I manage to do that, and necessarily it won't have been something that's been seen before. So, you know, I get that that's the system isn't calibrated to recognize that, which it doesn't know. And on the other hand, you know, I get slapped around for, for doing stuff that's, you know, that it doesn't know. So, um, but I mean, that's not a complaint. I mean, that's the constant, that's a dynamic tension that's, that pushes the whole thing forward. Hopefully. And right now people are dictating it, not clients. And that's a great news for, for me. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a really good segue too. So you were telling me a little bit offline about a uh, YouTube director and how you think that's going to kind of change how this work gets done, or at least open some different doors. So tell me a little bit about your take on YouTube director. I mean, I think it's awesome. You know, again, I, one of my heroes, one of my, I'm a big believer in heroes and Francis Ford Coppola is one of my creative heroes. And one of my, I'm a huge documentary fan. And one of my favorite movies of all time of any kind happens to be a documentary called hearts of darkness. And it was sort of the B roll footage that his wife, um, you know, shot while they were making apocalypse now. And so I recommend everybody go, just go see that. Anybody who's ever tried to do anything creative needs to watch that movie. It's amazing. But at the very end, and it takes place in, in, in real time at that time when they were doing it. Have you seen it? I have not seen it, but I've of course seen apocalypse now. And I've read the book heart of darkness that apocalypse now is kind of based on. So, so connecting the dots there, that's cool. It's a treat. But in any case, at the end, at the very, very end, it, it cuts to what was then present day. I don't, I don't know when the movie was. So it's, it's Francis, you know, now. And they got him in a little, they got him for five minutes on a little folding chair at whatever location he was at. 
And at the time, I mean, it seems quaint to talk about it now, but at the th- they, you know, they asked him off camera, essentially, well, what do you think about the proliferation of sort of home video making devices? Like, what do you think, uh, you know, uh, about, you know, camcorders and that kind of stuff? And it's, it's, it's a similar analog here. And, you know, and he just said, you know, and I think they, I don't know if they were expecting him to just to just be, you know, very protective and talk about sort of high art and. Uh, and it was exactly the opposite. He said, I think it's amazing. I think it's awesome. You know, some little fat kid in Kansas is going to be the next Mozart. And, um, that's kind of what I think about this. You know, I mean, there's a Darwinian aspect to creativity. You know, people are creative in different ways and at different levels of quality and whatever else, you know? And I, I mean, I think, I think it's going to have a way of sort of sorting itself out, but for sure, for sure, if you keep your eye on the upper edge of it, we're going to find some serious, awesome, groundbreaking talent in a way that we wouldn't have if this didn't exist. So I think that's amazing. This is what my uh, eight-year-old daughter spends every free moment doing is she's got her iPad up in her bedroom and her littlest pet shop toys, which are like these miniature animals with big heads. And all of the littlest pet shop toys are starring in her videos that she makes. And they're, they're just hilarious. Like the things that she has figured out how to do with uh, you know, iMovie and her iPad, it, it's, it's beyond what, um, what I think I could do, <laughs> frankly. It probably is. And good for you for saying it. I, I really, I, it, it's awesome. And you know, if you're, if you're the maker of those things, um, the best thing that, that, that they could do, I don't know if it's Mattel or whoever it is, is, is run her stuff and give other kids the chance and just sort of somehow crowdsource it and vet things forward and, you know, and put that on the air. I mean, to me, that's much more compelling than what you could make to sort of look like that. In fact, I heard this morning, I think on NPR, of course, right? Um, uh, purveyor of all things good, but uh, that Target is doing that with their back to school campaign. There's some piece of it. Hmm, that's really cool. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. So the, I mean, just as a, I guess, tag on to that, you know, she's shopping online and looking for these rare figures that she's seen in other kids' videos. And the only reason that she knows they exist is because she's seen them out there. So she's actively tracking down these other toys to buy uh, so that, you know, she can put them in her videos and do the same yep. thing. So it's it's kind of interesting how that works. There you go. You just, you, just, you just basically define, you know, the consumer journey for today. Right. It has nothing to do with like the NBA kind of loosely finders that marketing grads get handed. I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and again, that's it's amazing. So she's become an evangelist, you know, for really for reasons that mean something to her for these things that she loves. And I mean, it's just think about that. It's so great. It's so much more powerful than like, you know, having some piece of thing wash over her for 30 seconds that she's not paying attention to. At some point, we just sort of want to buy the thing or experience the thing so that we can share it on social media. <laughs> like, never mind the fact that now I have this toy. I just want to be able to post the video of me with this toy. Well, but, uh, yeah. I mean, but right now, anyway, she's eight. So it's authentic and it's really <laughs> exactly. bringing her joy to create stuff with it, which is great. Well, Jonathan, do you have any um, dream projects that you'd still like to tackle? What's What's next for you? I have Tons of them. Luckily, I, I, you know, that, you know, I mean, if you think great advertising is rare, you should see what great experience design is. It's really rare. And I spent the last five years, you know, getting paid to make those things. And what I ended up doing mainly was making decks to propose those things and having everybody hopefully think I was slightly smart. <laughs> um, and, you know, but I mean, the, you know, most of it never got made. And I think, you know, maybe we were ahead of our time and I totally get that. And like, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about the system and how it works. I I know it. Um, But I want to get some of that stuff, you know, off of digital files and into the world. And um, so it's it's a whole spectrum. And hopefully, you know, I think that my being here at Philo with a bunch of people who feel really the same way, all in sort of slightly different specialties, um, you know, the chances are hopefully, you know, pretty good that we can, we can get some of that done. Well, before we wrap up here, I'm curious what your best piece of advice is that you either share with your coworkers or, you know, people who are new to the industry or maybe what some of the best advice you've ever received has been. Wow. Um, I've received, I've been very lucky 
uh, I've had some great mentors and bosses from Tom McGilligan to Michael Conrad to, you know, uh, I mean, just the, the list goes on, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a glib answer, which is, you know, they can't make shit if you don't bring them shit. And, um, it may be difficult to get something awesome done in this realm, especially when it seems as if all the forces are aligned against it. But again, it's up to you. And, you know, what I've always tried to do is respectfully say, Hey, look, I, let us go back and do more stuff. I'm not going to change this thing <laughs> that way because it's not this thing anymore, you know, but what I will do is I'll go back and do more work, you know, and I mean, it, it has to be, it's a, it's, and, and that and be empathetic, you know, I'll tell you one last story. So there's a guy who's an idol of mine, you know, got one of the founders of could be Silverstein, Rich Silverstein. Uh, I happened to be like in some award show thing with him and they had just taken on a massive client. I won't name it. And I, but I knew that the client was not famous for their kind of work. And I said, you know, Rich, how are you going to manage this? You, know, you guys got famous and successful doing this thing. And now all of a sudden you're going to get more successful financially doing this completely different thing. Like, what's that going to look like? How are you going to deal with it? And he said, you know, Jonathan, and actually I think he got this advice from Hal Reine, who also started a great agency called you know, Hal Reine. But he said, every, every meeting I go into, I don't know if it's true, but I love the story. I have a little index card uh, in my inside pocket of my jacket that says, what if he's right? And it's just a reminder to myself that as smart and cool and, you know, with it as I think I am, stay humble, stay empathetic. There is a way to solve this Rubik's cube, but it's probably not by being snotty um, or walking out. You know, it just, no, nothing happens, uh, you know, that's going to advance anything that way. So that was hard one wisdom for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is great advice and an awesome story. So I hope everybody that's listening takes that with them, that mental index card in their pocket that says, what if he's right? What if he's right? Uh, well, before we let you go, maybe you can tell us a little bit about where we can find you on the interwebs and uh, best place to track you down and kind of see some of your stuff. That'd be great. So uh, I'm at John P. Hoff, uh, J-O-N, because it's Jonathan uh, P. Hoff on Twitter and Instagram. And anybody can email me. I'm on my LinkedIn is public and I'm at J Hoffman at philomedia.tv. Very cool. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate you uh, sharing some stories with us today and thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that's episode number 30 in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in to Obsessed with Design. For all of today's show notes, please hit up obsessedshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes and give us a rating and a review. And if you're not already, subscribe to the show. We appreciate it. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Hit us up online at milesherndon.com. Our show intro music is from... Cassie Joe. It's a song called Matchbox Girl. And our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com. Got some great interviews coming up, so stay tuned. And if you have any thoughts on who else you think we should interview next, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Josh Miles. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>